it's important to note that you know this the kind of experiments we've done are relatively straightforward what i mean by that is that it's easy to understand you know when you explain to somebody oh how do we learn with two senses or what happens when you combine smells and colors and these are things that are not necessarily very dense with jargon with technical jargon so conceptually it's not very difficult to explain and i think that helps make it more um sort of palatable and relatable for a broader audience yeah i agree and that's something we we always kind of think about and commonly say you know commonly it's been said that it is that way but the actual real hard data you know was kind of not there so so this is really wonderful and i think something almost everyone is interested in uh, because it's yeah something you know when we make memories and they're maybe many many years old and um you know, all of a sudden we recall them and people think about that, I think, a lot. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, was even thinking, I was even thinking, you know, this is almost everybody has had where, let's say, they smell a cleaning product and then kind of they, they immediately see in their mind, you know, they're transported back into time where they were visiting their grandmother's home or, I don't know, they were in school. So it, it's really interesting how that seems to be a very universal and relatable phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. That's, um, yeah, I think it's it, what for me personally, as like an immigrant kid since always, um, like since I'm little, was that the minute you're, let's say, in your home neighborhood, like you arrived, you feel like you never left, you know? <laughs> I don't know if anyone experiences that. Uh, yeah, definitely, we are both like in, all the time uh, in between yeah. is gone. <laughs> it's so yeah, interesting. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Okay, I think we can start. Thank you for this. Really, um, put it into context pre-discussion we had. I think that was actually really <laughs> helpful. And so, yeah, I want to welcome everyone to Science Society. We'll. Um, start with introductions. Um, uh, so welcome um, really to the both of you. Um, you know, as we said, that are willing to, you know, use this different platform, make an account and everything. We all really appreciate it. So welcome, um, Dr. Okri and uh, Peter Jacob. Um, and yeah, let me give the audience a short introduction first, and then uh, we'll get into interviewing the two of you a little bit. So Dr. Pietro Jacob um, joined the University of Oxford in 2017 as a, a postdoc in Scott Waddell's laboratory and in the Center for Neural Circuits and Behavior. And um, he did his undergrad degree from the University of Lisbon and his doctorate from the University of Cambridge, where he worked in the lab of Bertolt Hedwig, um, studying the neural circuitry 
um, evolution of the song system in cricket, which is by itself really interesting. Maybe one day we invite you back to talk about cricket. <laughs> <laughs> we had a really interesting couple of spider rooms. So I think crickets would be wonderful too. Yeah. And um, his main, uh, your main research interest now um, is in behavioral flexibility, how it arises and evolves and how dynamically changing environments demand uh, that uh, animals constantly adapt their behavior and update memories and incorporate new information. And um, uh, Dr. Um, Aukri, um, she or you did your education at uh, the University of Chicago in Biological Sciences. And um, then you did your master's degree at the Catholic University in Leuven, uh, Belgium, and also your PhD. And then you um, worked there um, until 2016. And uh, from 2017 till now, you're at the University of Oxford. So welcome to both of you. And yeah, the first question that uh, I would like to ask you is how did you discover this passion for science or that you wanted to, you know, um, have a career in science? Was it a childhood dream or, you know, something that came later on with a class or teacher museum trip, whatever it is, we think it's really interesting and would ever like to start. Please go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. And yeah, again, it's a pleasure to speak to you all. Um, it's difficult to answer this question about, you know, how, <laughs> how did you decide to be a scientist? Because it felt sort of an organic path for me. I think one thing that I do remember as possibly a big incentive was that I used to be crazy about museums. So I had, I didn't have a biology museum close to where I grew up. I grew up in Turkey, actually, uh, close to Ankara, the capital. And however, there was a um, geology museum. And I just loved, loved, loved visiting this museum and basically kind of made friends with the curator there. And uh, they get help, uh, they sort of let me uh, handle some of the specimens. So I got into sort of understanding what science is a bit like from uh, the physical sciences side. And then in school, I realized that I was very interested in um, sort of living systems and how, uh, especially how evolution works was very interesting to me. And um, when I started my university degree, I uh, was, I developed a passion for immunology of all things which then uh, changed into uh, neuroscience. But um, yeah, I, overall, I think I've always been super fascinated about sciences. Um, thank you for inviting me. Um, me, I think, was, really, I guess, how every little kid gets in, into science uh, by watching nature documentaries and all these I told my parents that I wanted to go and be a kind of a David Attenborough 
uh, type thing, look at animal behavior. I've always <laughs> been fascinated by animal behavior. And um, during during the, my degree, I was fortunate enough to to be serendipitously uh, put in a class of animal behavior, and then that refueled my passion for neuroscience and uh, and uh, like science in general. So it was basically I was always fascinated by animal behavior and and how do how does it evolve and and yeah, that's really interesting um, that you both said that it was not necessarily in school itself, but outside of school. That uh... yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I, you know this is a testament to having exposure via you know media or uh, documentaries, and now I think the quality of those have improved enormously as well, which is really nice. And uh, for me, museums were a whole thing. I remember the first time, I was much older then, but the first time that I saw the Natural History Museum in London, I just was under its spell for days. Like, I completely lost my mind over it. So for me, museums were a big thing. Yeah, that's, that's really um, wonderful to hear, especially for people, you know, that are giving money to museums and so on. Um, and and also for this documentaries that people are making them i think it's very encouraging to you know keep uh, financing them and and have them available for everyone uh ideally for free and i agree it's such a wonderful different way of learning uh, that probably <laughs> evokes some sort of i don't know emotional experience combined with you know gaining knowledge that is unbeatable, probably. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful story that you both shared. Um, and um, <laughs> I think it's really interesting because a lot of, you know, speakers answer these type of questions, um, sometimes similar, sometimes not. But a lot of people say that, I don't know, a trip to nature or living close to nature or museums and so on were kind of important so yeah it seems to be, it seems to be very very um yeah very important for our children's lives and um then coming to the research we will talk about today how how did um start did you start working on it how did it come together was it very hard and difficult or you know, is there any kind of story around it that you would like to share with us? Thank you. Um, yeah, so we are like you by the the curriculum, the the, the CV that Katarina uh, presented you. You see that you started in the same year, but what's not there is that we start uh, eight day, eight days apart. Six days apart. Six <laughs> days apart because you appeared on the first day of the year. <laughs> The yeah, I, I traveled on the 1st of January because it was uh, cheaper. So I, I just showed up at work on the on the 1st of January and that's what he's making fun of. Yeah. So yeah, so we uh we initially didn't work together, but um um we had common common interests. Uh Zainab was always interested in like how 
because we are going to talk about this later in the in the talk is that we use a very simple from that was developed in the 1970s by um, Ship Queen, that is the the postdoc supervisor of uh, Scott. Uh, it's a very simple old paradigm of this teammates paradigm, but uh, then uh, she can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. But she was always interested in understand like this is a very simple setup, and animals don't experience this uh, simplicity in the environment. And I was fascinated by how animals adapt to to different contingencies, so how they adapt to changing environments as well. So this was kind of the start that Zenep can tell a, a bit more. The, uh, the size of... So yeah. actually, yes, uh, we, we didn't start working together, but you know, we've been good friends for a long time. Uh, however, so when I first started, started in uh, Scott's lab, I didn't, uh, I didn't have experience doing behavior. And, you know, I started, uh, I, I, I arrived and I wrote my a project to uh, get funded, which got funded, but then the project didn't turn out uh, to be viable. So I was basically just trying different things, uh, asking different questions. For about two years or so, I kind of uh, floated. And then while I was doing experiments, one of the things that I realized using this teammate setup was that the the flies that we uh, were trying to teach um, associations to were learning more more cues than what we were explicitly teaching them. What I mean by this is that in this teammate's paradigm, we train the flies to associate smells with a particular reward or punishment. And I also, uh, what I did realize is that they were also learning something about kind of the chamber they were in, the texture of the chamber, perhaps the color of the chamber. And that if I kind of replicated this chamber between the training and the testing phases, that this actually improved memory. So this is something that's well known in the learning and memory field, that if you match the encoding and the retrieval phases of uh, which is like the learning and the memory retrieval, then you get better performance. But nobody really uh, knows, uh, uh, understood why the why this happened in the brain. And when I actually observed this, I another thing I realized is that you know it, it, we could call it context, right? So the the chamber that the animals were in, that they were learning in. But this context is a very ambiguous word. So, you know, I had to really delve into um, literature from starting from like the 50s, 60s, 70s to try to understand, you know, what is known about the so-called contextual memory and what is context anyway? And context is essentially sort of this, a, a complete collection of both internal and external cues that the animal uses to understand its environment. And uh, what I realized is that, you know, for us to uh, start probing the neural basis of uh, contextual memory, we need to choose, kind of reduce it to in, in its dimensions and choose, let's say, one very explicit additional cue and uh, kind of see what happens, what kind of interactions happen between two uh, different sensory cues while the animals are learning to associate 
these choose to a punishment or reward. So I picked uh, basically odors. So I picked smells, which is what we've been using. And I added colors as a specific contextual cue. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting that you chose smell and color. I think I find that a really interesting combination. And mm -hmm. um, this is a great segue to your actual talk. So I think we can we can dive into that now. So everyone, feel free to access the slides that are pinned on top of the room. And um, yeah, the stage uh, is. Yours. Thank you so much. Uh, we, uh, I can also add, like, basically, it was an interesting uh, story of how me and Pedro started working together as well. Because you know, once I once I decided that okay, I'm going to try to teach the flies with two um, cues, both uh, of different senses, both smells and colors. I designed some experiments and you know uh, was optimizing these protocols. So here I am, and one day it worked out actually quite. Well, I got excited, you know, trying to replicate the results. At some point, the the phenotypes that I was um, observing just disappeared. So the the setup stopped working, and I was just going uh, crazy. I couldn't figure out what was going on, and I'm like, I started almost uh, not believing it myself, and because I was trying, trying, couldn't recover the phenotype. And one day we were in the fly room, which is like where we keep and work with our flies. And Pedro was, you know, sort of uh, uh, going along with his own work. And I was on the verge of tears, almost being like, I can't take it anymore. I can't take it. I need to, you know, I, I either figure it out or I quit now, right? That I go and do something else. Um, and, you know, Pedro being the gracious, wonderful person that he is, I said, you know what, just, let me give it a try, just another pair of hands, uh, you never know. So I explained to him how to do the experiment, and he actually did the experiment, funny enough, in another room, which turned out to be the problem. Turned, uh, apparently our humidity sensor was off, right? So something so small can have such a huge effect. But Pedro did this experiment in another room and recovered the phenotype, the behavior that I was uh, I had initially observed. So we, I was extremely excited and we very quickly discovered that we work very well together. And this whole story that we'll be telling you about today is essentially us working super closely together to the point where almost all of the experiments we split half an hour. So, you know, I would start the experiment and a few hours later, I would just call Pedro and he would just uh, take over, like almost like a relay race. So in this sense, this is truly the, the sort of product of a very collaborative effort. That's wonderful to hear. And, um, you know, it's really interesting um, because it's the second like room and where this was pointed out by you know by the researcher because we had here uh, last week a doctor Hertz who uh, discovered you know together in a collaboration uh, the full uh, structure of the nuclear pore of the cell and this was like mm -hmm. over 20 years effort 
And the main thing he kept pointing out was how important it was that all the groups, because it's impossible to do by itself, how all the groups kind of worked together over time and mm -hmm. were like family and they could all trust each other and work well together mm -hmm. and without that would never happen. So thank you for pointing that out again. How, how Definitely. I mean, I, I have to say, I think this is something to me that is just as important as the discovery itself, which is to really you know it's not necessarily always a very easy thing we always say oh we should collaborate you know uh, as a team but there are elements of the system that sometimes make this difficult right and uh you know we're essentially in a meritocracy there are sometimes resources that we all compete for but what does collaboration within this boundary look like because you know, I've got to experience, I used to always be collaborative, but I've got to experience collaboration. I've never experienced collaboration at this level before. And now I realize the true power of it. It's extremely, it's more than just an additive thing. It's very synergistic because we're both humans, right? And we were able to sort of carry each other through times that were difficult, that were frustrating. So we just moved with enormous speed and uh, momentum so i i sort of urge everyone to kind of try to discover what that would look like in their own uh life and in their own work right it does take work i have to say it's not always you know you have to communicate very well you have to be very open-minded you have to understand each other and empathize with each other but it's definitely something that i think is very very worth it yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I agree. And then the other type of rooms we had sometimes lately was where the level, uh, like where the additional technology came into play to you know, use human collaboration with AI to, it was about figuring new steps to develop um, certain materials and um, and as uh, semiconductors, new type of semiconductors and so on, which in the future will add a, another interesting layer to it. But I think, yeah, human collaboration is really, it, it's wonderful when it happens. So, yeah, so, well, <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. Great. So we can uh, go ahead and talk to you about our work then? Yep, please go ahead. Um, Sure, if you open the, the deck that's uh, the PowerPoint slides, um, this is, I actually, we didn't really know what this was going to be. So it's a bit of a mixed up um, deck of slides. But if you go to, say, um, slide four or even slide three, where this is basically just uh, some results from a human. Um, human study that they did where basically also while we all know that learning using multiple senses uh, improves both the acquisition and the recall of memory and uh, there's actually you know people have done quantitative studies and shown this uh, at the at the data level so here you can see that uh, if you learn using both um, audio and visual uh, cues you uh first of all learn quicker and then you uh 
uh, remember more correctly over time compared to say learning with visual alone. Uh, so we wanted while this is well appreciated and also appreciated in the in by educators, for example, who uh, come up with teaching strategies at school. Um, we don't really understand the neurobiological basis of how the brain does this. So this was essentially uh, what motivated us to really understand the circuits and the, the uh, neuro neurological activity that could explain this phenomenon. So we work with um, the Fufai Drosophilus, and um, this is uh, for various reasons, but the main reason is that, oh, this is, by the way, in uh, slide four, uh, which is just a title slide, but uh, this is because these animals, they're essentially like, they have brains that are numerically simple relative to higher animals, but they're able to generate a surprisingly complex behavior repertoire including some uh, quite rich learning behaviors where they associate cues with uh, meaningful events like um, a sugar reward or a punishment. Uh, so if you see in slide five, uh, this is basically what I mentioned in the beginning that this protocol this paradigm was developed by Shipquin in MIT, um, in, yeah, uh, in MIT, where he uh, teaches like uh, teach uh, flies how to associate either a sugar or a, a shock um, to the flies, and this is what is called a conditional stimulus plus. And then we have uh, here we show it as other two. And then uh, we have another odor, uh, odor one, that is the unpaired odor that we call condition stimulus one, uh, condition stimulus minus, sorry. And then after some uh, amount of time, we can test uh, the memory for the preference between odor one and odor two. Here you can see it's a very simple uh, paradigm with only odors. And then if you move to slide six, uh, we can see that if we pair this uh, this um, uh, this this protocol with sugar, we can see what we call uh, a positive performance index. So basically, uh, we calculate uh, the number of flies in the the conditional stimulus plus the CS plus uh, arm minus the conditional stimulus minus the CS minus arm divided by the total number of flies and we have uh, a performance index that in this case will be like 0.2 or something so positive would mean approaching the the cs plus and negative would mean avoiding the cs plus and one thing that is uh, uh, good to point out is that this is a population a population analysis so each dot that we are going to present in the behavior data set is always co comprised by uh, about 200 flies. So it's a very robust phenotype, um, a very robust phenotype. And so uh, the, the story was, is about multisensory. So we saw that- what, if, you, if you also turn to slide eight. Yes. Uh, the, the story is about multisensory. So what we did is that we adapt the same uh, paradigm 
but now we added uh, a color. And uh, what we did is that, let me see, other one uh, associated with color one and other two associated with color two. And then again, after some time, we test for the preference of uh, the two different combination. And in this case, what we're going to focus is mainly on, uh, you could see in the, the, the paper, uh, we have both uh, punishment and uh, reward, but here just for simplicity, we're just going to focus on reward or sugar memory, what we call sugar memory. So if you move to slide nine. Yeah, so here what uh, we did was to essentially design four initial protocols to test uh, different aspects of multi-sensory learning. And also just to see, okay, can, can the flies actually learn both, um, both the visual and the odor cues in this particular setup? Because people hadn't combined these two before. So the first one uh, that we uh, tried is the visual only learning. This is where we only presented colors during the training where and hoped that the flies could associate, uh, say, the sugar with a particular color. And during testing, we would only use colors again. Then we have the olfactory only condition. And here we uh, train the flies to associate sugar with an odor. And then we test the preference to this odor. Um, and during testing, we only present the odors. And then we have the congruence condition. This is where we paired colors and odors uh, during training and during testing. And we kept these particular odor color pairings um, consistent between the training and the testing. And finally, we uh, added another um condition kind of initially as a control but we called it the incongruent condition this is where we would pair uh odors and colors again but we actually inverted the odor color pairs between training and testing so this is um in slide nine again sorry apologies that we keep on forgetting to mention the slide numbers uh, but it's essentially going in in um sequence so we first we went ahead and uh, if you actually removed uh, the, can you actually, uh, Katrina, can you see the full graph in the deck that you have? Uh, yeah, um, the visual, uh, the first three are kind of a little bit uh, less like opaque, but we, we can see the full, all three. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I think I, this was basically uh, since we didn't know that we weren't we wouldn't share um our screen we kind of left it as a as a powerpoint presentation but if you can see the data then that's all you need anyway um so. yeah but uh, but if you go to slide 10 um maybe you uh, if you move to slide 10 um what you can see is that um, is that a, a visual memory, right? Like the V, uh, a graph with a V, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but nothing else. Yeah. Exactly. Is that correct? Okay. So, uh, is there any way to 
to put it like in slideshow mode in this deck? Yeah, so if everyone wants to use it as a slideshow, yeah. um, please open yeah. um, it if you have in Google Slides and then press play basically then you can you can have it as a slideshow if people uh, yeah. have because that will have because we have the uh, we have the um, kind of the, the flow of presentation so sorry about this uh so basically but I, I will for the people that can see great but basically what we saw is that if we we present the visual condition only we see that we couldn't see really a, a, a memory and um so uh, basically, they did, wouldn't have a preference between uh, CS plus, CS plus and CS minus. And, uh, so, and next, we we try to, uh, if you see in the slide mode, and if you press forward, uh, we we try to to present the others uh, only condition, and we see a performance index that is normal to what we see before. Uh, in our normal unisensory exper experiments. But if we combine the odors and the colors in the next, if you move the, the, the slide forward, uh, the, the next, the congruence or the C condition, you, you can see a massive increase in the memory performance. And that is like, was what is really exciting that we could see that even flies could associate to 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 cues, and this would get a, a, a performance much better than the than, than just the unisensory cues. And if you could see from the from the the data, is that is not uh, is not uh, additive because we couldn't see any unisensory visual information, so it's not additive. There is something else going on on the system that. Uh, shows this uh, in enhancement in memory performance. And interestingly is that we found, if you move the slide forward again, uh, if you move the slide forward again, uh, we could see that in congruent condition, uh, we found that if we switch the pairs of colors and the others between training and testing, we see that actually the, the memory performance in uh, incongruent or I um, is much uh, lower than uh, the the unisensory audit, uh, auditory or uh, the O condition, and this is kind of interesting because it would show that the uh, flies are now uh, exposed to a conflict between two sensory cues, and they actually perform worse uh, than uh, before. So. Now, if you move to slide 11, I'm sorry about the, the hiding in between slides. Mm -hmm. uh, so now if you move to slide 11, um, we kind of uh, try to test uh, now two different uh, paradigms. Is it what happens if we, if we want to know is the memory, uh, the memory improvement would be apparent if we retrieve the multisensory memory using only one modality. So, if we can retrieve the the original memory just by presenting either odors or uh, colors to the, the to the flies, and uh, see if this could uh, recapitulate the the enhancement that we saw before. Um, is this clear so far? 
you can ask questions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, and please ask us uh, anything that's not uh, clear so we can um, just make sure that, you know, we explain it better. <laughs> yeah, so in slide 12, slide 12, uh, you know. Yeah, so in slide 12, you can see the results of um, the results of these experiments where we train the flies using both visual and olfactory cues, but then we retrieve the memory with only part of this multisensory uh, stimuli. So we would retrieve the memory only using odors or only using colors. When we retrieve the uh, when we train the flies multisensorily and retrieve the memory with odors only, we saw that the memory was still uh, much better than unisensory, so olfactory only learning. Uh, we thought this was absolutely fascinating, and we realized that it works the other way around. So, for example, when we trained flies with both colors and odors, but then retrieve the memory using colors only, this the memory performance was still better than if the flies only used visual cues, which basically in this setup didn't really produce a uh, strong memory at all. And uh, so we were very encouraged by this and started to wonder, okay, can we understand uh, the neural basis of how this enhancement works? So we uh, took a look, if you open slide 13, um we decided to focus on the mushroom body which is this uh structure l-shaped structure in uh, the fly's central brain which we consider to be the center for associative learning and memory and uh we know actually quite a bit about this structure uh, based on decades of research by uh both our group and many many others and uh, if you go to slide seven, go back to slide seven, you'll see a simplified schematic of the mushroom body. So here, what, uh, what you can see is that the mushroom body, this L-shaped um, structure is formed by the uh, so-called Kenyan cells. These Kenyan cells are essentially um, cells that carry sensory information. They encode for the identity of the sensory stimulus, and they extend their processes, in this case, axons, to form this L-shaped uh, bundle. And these axons of Kenyan cells are innervated by dopaminergic neurons, which relay value, right, valence. And in, for example, in the case of sugar, they're activate, activated by sugar reward. And then, in uh, these dopaminergic neurons, when they're innervating the axons of Kenyan cells, they form very distinct compartments. In this uh, particular slide, the gamma-5 compartments uh, we highlighted because this compartment is relevant in sugar learning. And then finally, there are the mushroom body output neurons. These are neurons that ultimately direct behavior of, let's say, avoidance or approach. And the whole learning uh, system at, at this level uh, works such that the Kenyan cells, uh, the particular Kenyan cells that are active during um, stimulus exposure, 
this, if this activity coincides with the activity of certain dopaminergic neurons, this changes the plasticity, uh, the weight of uh, the synapses and the plasticity uh, of the connections between tendon cells and mushroom body output neurons, which then later on skews the behavior towards approach or avoidance. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. That's, okay. That's really interesting to see. Thank you. So this is, you know what? I mean, of course, this is a much more simple, I, I we've simplified it quite a bit because there's, uh, you know, this is a network that's highly interconnected there is some interneurons, which we won't get into today, which we uh, worked with as well for our paper. But uh, it's a really neat system of a relatively manageable number of neurons that are able to function in a sort of different permutations to create all sorts of learning phenomena. And it's really interesting to study, to study these to get an idea of the logic of how neural circuits work to create memories and of course you know people ask is this the same in in humans and uh, what we do know is that a lot of the principles that we've discovered in flies uh, especially in like associative learning these principles are conserved for in the mammalian brain and yes of course the mammalian brain has many layers of added complexity but at least uh, the way that the rules and the principles of how it works seem to be conserved. So we, um, as I said, we uh, focused on the mushroom body. And in the mushroom body, we focused on these Kenyan cells that, um, if you turn to slide uh, 14, we focused on these Kenyan cells that uh, receive visual inputs. So these uh, are the gamma D in yellow and the alpha-beta posterior Kenyan cells in pink. And um, we mostly focused actually on the gamma D and that's what we can talk about. Um, yeah, uh, so this, we take advantage, we take advantage of these uh, gamma D and alpha-beta posterior because also what we have in the flies that we have a full a full reconstruction of the the, the central brain and now uh, also the ventral nerve cord, so like the motor output region. So we know basically how each neuron is connected. And what you can see in slide 14 is um, a reconstruction of these Kenyan cells um, uh, done done by in this. It was done by Google uh, uh, machine learning. That reconstructed all these neurons. So now we have access to where these neurons connected uh, are connected, and which are the input uh, and output of these neurons. This will be important later on in the talk. So if you move to to slide 15, um, we we also take advantage of the years and years and years of uh, tools that were developed. Uh, in the in the drosophila field, and we can basically silence or activate uh, neurons that we are of interest. And then, uh, in this case, what we did is to use um, a temperature control um, block of the activity of these neurons. So it basically it's a mutant for the dynamine, 
so it uh, doesn't allow uh, the uh, the process of a neurotransmitter. And basically, uh, what we can do is that we can block these neurons at any time point that we want, uh, and then see their effect in memory. So this is what is uh, exemplified in, in this. Uh, in this. Um, uh, Catalina, one question: What kind of a time uh, frame are we talking about? Because we're, you know, we're trying to explain the details, but we also don't want to run too much over time. Uh, you're fine. As long as you have time, we we have time. So please okay. feel free to. Yeah, All right. Thanks. So we'll try, we'll try to. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully we won't keep you here for too long. <laughs> but basically, um, indeed, uh, as, as Pedro said, you know, we took, we made use of these um, genetic tools that we have that allow us to very tightly control neuronal function. So we. What we did was that, okay, we first wanted to see, here we have the visual Kenyan cells. Let's try to block these visual Kenyan cells and see like, okay, are they involved in at least the visual components of our multisensory learning paradigm? You would expect that uh, they would be. So we, would, we block them, as you can see on slide 15 again, we block them only during the testing to see if uh, the memory performance in all these conditions were affected. Again, this is the congruent condition, the visual retrieval, the olfactory condition, and the olfactory retrieval. <clears throat> From here, basically, if you go to slide 16, you see that uh, the, the yellow and the pink are when we blocked um, an either set of the visual Kenyan cells. Uh, the yellow being the gamma D Kenyan cells, and the pink is the alphabet posterior Kenyan cells. And we, when we block these during the testing phase of the congruent condition, we found that the enhancement of memory performance was gone. So this kind of made sense because we thought, okay, we're blocking the the visual input, so you know the animals can't rely on this to improve their memory. So that made sense. And then we also found the same thing for the visual retrieval. So this is where we would train the flies with odors and colors and retrieve the memory with colors only. So if we blocked visual Kenyan cells during the, the retrieval, we completely abolished the memory, which made sense because you know the retrieval only involved colors. But then what, was, uh, what we found very interesting is on slide 17. This is where uh, we blocked the uh, visual Kenyan cells in the olfactory and the olfactory retrieval condition. It's important to note that uh, the testing phase of these conditions only have olfactory stimuli, so they don't have any visual input. So we reason there should be no reason for the visual cases to be involved, at least in the olfactory, right? And indeed, in the olfactory only learning, you can block these visual cases and it doesn't seem to affect the performance at all. However, uh, what we got very excited about was that when we block these visual Kenyan cells, uh, in this case, um, specifically the gamma D uh, Kenyan cells in yellow. So when we block these cells uh, during retrieval, where there's only odors, this actually really significantly impaired memory performance. So somehow the visual Kenyan cells became required 
uh, doing the testing to retrieve the full multisensory memory, even though they were retrieving it using odors only. And uh, so inside 18, so we wonder why, like, why is this visual canyon cell, like the gamma D, are required for offertory retrieval of multisensory memory? So um, what's happening at the level of these cells to, to, to allow this requirement? So what we did, and uh, so you can see it on slide 19, inside 19, is that uh, what we did is that try to look at their uh, activity pattern after we train them, either with offertory only, like the gray squares there, or the congruence, where we show both offertory and um, um, colors. And then after uh, some time, like six hours, we test them uh, under the microscope uh, using uh, a voltage reporter. And this is, this is important because normally what we did, do in the lab is use GCAMP or these calcium, calcium reporters. But uh, the, the thing that we'll see on slide uh, 20, it um, flies, if you look at the first uh, set, the, the, the top set of the, of the, the slide, the offertory condition, is that these flies actually respond to orders by being inhibited. So we record in this specific region that uh, Zenop mentioned, the gamma 5. Um, and we see that uh, in uh, purple, the, in purple, dark, uh, in both purple and dark, uh, dark and uh, light purple, uh, it's the, the response uh, of, the, of uh, a fly to the average response of, uh, of the flies to both the CS plus and CS minus. And what you can see is that in the uh, in, uh, in, uh, gamma 5 region, we see an inhibition to the others. And this has already been observed before that uh, actually the, uh, these visual canyon cells respond by in being inhibited to, to others. But the, we tried initially to use uh, discussion reporters like GCAM, but the problem is that it's very difficult to, to observe this inhibition. So to, to observe the, like a change, you can see uh, a change in inhibition, but we, we're not, never sure if this is a, a, a disinhibition. So if the, the, the response is less inhibited or actually being excited. Um, and so what we change, like I mentioned, what we change to ASAP is that uh, we are actually seeing an excitation. So if you see the bottom part of the, of the, the panel in gamma 5 region, uh, we see that the CS plus, the dark purple uh, curve, uh, responds with a, an increase in activity, path, uh, activity uh, in comparison to the CS minus that uh, is, is still inhibited on the offertory retrieval. So just to, just to add one thing to that, is that uh, remember that CS plus is the rewarded odor and CS minus is the non-rewarded odor. And the gamma five region is the region where uh, it, this region is relevant for sugar learning. This is where the dopaminergic input uh, that relays sugar information goes. And uh, one of the things that the, one of the <laughs> nerdy jokes that we like to make 
is that you know now we're seeing if we actually train these flies with both colors and odors then these previously visual only canine cells now become excited by odors and we always say that uh, this is equally exciting to us as well as <laughs> these neurons that's why i just wanted to plug in this uh this very nerdy joke that I'm very proud of at the moment. Yes. <laughs> that was an important in interruption to the program. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so, and then if you, see, you can see on the right-hand side of the slide, you see that we also image a, diff a completely different region on the polar opposite of the mushroom body, what we call the gamma-1. and the, and in this case, we didn't see any effects in the in the activity patterns of these neurons. So we are recording the same neurons because they uh, bundle from the the region where they have the cell bodies, and there is basically a track that g runs from gamma one to gamma five. So they they have a track, and so we record the, the same bundle of neurons, uh, both in gamma one and gamma five, but why don't we see an effect in gamma 1 is because this is the known place where the punishment dopaminergic neurons uh, innervate so basically because we are using sugar uh, there there is no reason why these neurons should change their activity pattern because the, the there was no dopamine uh, being released in this area so that's why we don't see uh, an effect in this area and this was uh, some sort of control an important control to have that it's not like a, a generalized sensory increase but it's very specific to the compartment where dopamine uh, is released uh, so one addition to that is that indeed as Pedro said we weren't expecting this excitation in the gamma one because already from our results from gamma five we had the intuition that this excitation was only happening because there was dopamine in there why did we know this? We knew it because the CS plus, it was only the CS plus odor that was actually eliciting an excitation. As you can see, the light uh, purple uh, data does not show this excitation. So there's something about having both colors and odors as well as dopamine that was making this sort of change, a uh, drastic change in responsiveness. Uh, so this is in slide 21. This is basically a very, uh, very uh, simplified schematic of what we are thinking that was happening. So basically, uh, like we said in the gamma five, and also we know gamma four is also we were just simplified, but we know that gamma four is also uh, received uh, reward dopaminergic neurons reward bands, and what we think is happening is that when uh, the odors and colors come during learning or in the first in the left hand side um, column what we call multi-sensory repetitive training what we think is that there is a change in the synaptic uh, connection between the, the canine cells and the output neurons uh, the, the canine cells and these uh, dopaminergic neurons um, and they and they uh, change their activity then when we present the CS plus odor, like the condition of stimulus plus the reward odor uh, after training, 
there is some sort of activity that is also only change on that side of the on the gamma four and gamma five part, uh, part and not on the other region of the 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 gamma d canyon cell. So this is what we mean by these um, little arrows going from the other to the to the to the from the, the gray arrows going from the the CS plus older to the yellow arrow. And at that time, we didn't really, you know, we didn't know anything about what could be bridging this activity. So, uh, you know, at that time, we were just thinking, oh, the activity is literally looks like it's jumping from one stream to the other only in this uh, compartment. So there's some invisible bridge that forms between these two streams when dopamine is present. So we then, uh, set out to identify what that bridge could be. But before that, actually, what we didn't mention is that on slide 22, we also checked whether the directionality of that cross-modal activity uh, was the same from uh, canyon cells that responded to visual stimuli to odor cells. So in this case, visual retrieval. If you remember, we also had this experiment where we, where we trained flies with odors and colors, and we retrieved the memory with colors alone, right? And we saw that there, this also uh, elicited an improvement in memory performance. So we thought, okay, is it gonna work the same way? Can we um, train, again, like multisensory train these flies and then give them color and see whether the response we could also observe a response in their olfactory cells, which would normally not respond to color. And we won't show you the data for that, but indeed this is the case. And if you do want to see that data, that's on uh, slides. Um, the setup is on slide 24, and uh, slide 25 and 26 is where that data is. So we had to change the setup a little bit under uh, the microscope setup because we had to figure out a way to deliver color and as well uh, at the same time record neuronal activity, which kind of the channels that we would record that overlapped in wavelengths with the colors we were giving. So we had to kind of come up with a nifty way to separate that. But if you want details on this, we can explain later on, or uh, if you ask about it, or you can take a look at the paper. So as I said, you know, we were interested in this bridge, which uh, you, again, you can see in slide uh, 27. So this bridge that would connect the two streams, the, the visual canyon cells and the odor canyon cell streams, especially where dopamine was. So what we found is, um, you can continue. So, uh, yeah. so what, we, we've, what we know before is that there is these two massive um, interneurons in the fly brain called DPM, the dorsal paired. Oh, sorry, in slide 28. There is these two massive interneurons in the fly brain, in the fly mushroom body, the DPM, the dorsal paired medial neuron, that uh, here co uh, colored in blue, that is serotonergic. And there is this anterior paired lateral neuron um, in purple that is GABAergic. And uh, we know that these neurons are crucial for olfactory learning. Um, and uh, what we could see in slide uh, 29, slide 29, is that the 
we first focus on finding the anatomical evidence to support the idea that um, that these neurons could be involved in this um, in this change of activity uh, in the canon cells. So uh, APL, we have some data on the APL, the anterior paralateral neuron, but APL being GABAergic, uh, inhibit, uh, uh, meaning that it's inhibitory, it couldn't be the candidate to be to be the the reason why the source uh, of my excitement. It couldn't yeah. be inhibitory, definitely. Yeah. It could, because we are seeing an excitation. So we focus on the DPM, the serotonergic neuron, and try to uh, find um, this, uh, if there is any anatomical evidence uh, that DPM bridges the excitatory activity between the different canon cells. And like I mentioned, now we have uh, these connectomics, like these inputs and outputs of these neurons. So we could just uh, see if there are basically um, uh, a match between where these neurons uh, input and output from. So what you can see in this figure, uh, in figure 29, is that what we call a dendrogram. So it's basically the neuron kind of uh, flatten out, and you could see the different regions that we see here, a mark, gamma 1, gamma 2, gamma 3, gamma 4, gamma 5. Uh, both the ventral and the dorsal uh, stream of this neuron. And what we, what we show is that there are uh, DPM synapses in close vicinity of visual, the gamma D canon cells, the, that mark in yellow, the, the yellow dots, and the, the olfactory canon cells, the gamma M canon cells that are marked with the gray dots. Uh, and, and what we argue is that these are in close proximity enough to allow this kind of market circuits, microcircuits between the two components to exist um, in the learning relevant compartments. So one thing that uh, I want to add here is that our study is a good example of how useful connectomics data can be. So what I mean by this is, again, connectomics data is basically the data that we've gotten from electron micros microscopy uh, reconstructions of the brain, which have been traced to reveal the individual synapses of each of these neurons in the mushroom body. So what we did was that here we have the problem of seeing, okay, you know, we're looking for a bridge, something to connect the activity between the two canyon cell streams, right? There could be different ways that this happens. For example, one hypothesis that we considered was that the, these two canyon cell streams could be directly connected, right? Why not? They're essentially in a bundle, so uh, what, maybe they're, they have synapses that just relay information from one stream to the other. But when we looked at the, we were able to eliminate the, this hypothesis by, just by looking at the connectomics data, because we saw that there was literally not enough synapses uh, that connect gamma M, so the olfactory canyon cells and the visual canyon cells to account for this activity. But what we could see, as Pedro just explained, is that, okay, if we add this DPM into the mix, then we see that the DPM is anatomically suitable to connect these two streams in a robust way. So, I mean, connectomics is awesome. And this is uh, Dr. Niels Otto, who um, actually led this analysis.
So if you look at the slide number 30, and we're coming to the end here, um, you know, DPM was becoming sort of this, our prime candidate for the excitatory, for accounting for the excitatory connection between these two streams. So we wanted to see whether at the behavioral level, we could prove its involvement. So we blocked DPM function uh, in the same way that we blocked these like visual neurons in the beginning, and uh, we blocked it during testing again. So what, and then what we saw is that, uh, first of all, if you look at uh, slide number 31, you can see here that uh, if you look at the right-hand side, you'll see the olfactory um, only learning and blocking DPM during testing does not in, uh, affect the, significantly impair or affect the performance, the memory performance in olfactory learning. However, when we looked at multisensory learning, and especially the olfactory retrieval and visual retrieval conditions, where we train multisensorily and retrieve with one modality, when we block DPM, we actually uh, abolish the multisensory enhancement. So this was this kind of solidified the idea that DPM, uh, if you look at slide 32, that DPM is actually the connection, provides the connection between the odor coding Kenyan cells and the visual Kenyan cells. So uh, this is what we mean by this uh, kind of this pathway between the CS plus odor in gray, and then we have this pathway uh, in blue, that is the DPM neuron, uh, leading to an increased activity in that particular uh, yellow branch of the gamma D and uh, cells. So when these two when this odor and these colors were associated during training, the the presentation of either one of the modalities, because we have the same data for the, um, the inverse, uh, the activation of either one of the modalities activate the other modality uh, via this uh, route. Um, Oh, yeah. So I guess like the final piece of data that we can talk to you about is the bonus uh, appearance of the 5-HD2A receptor. So this is slide 33. This is a serotonergic receptor that's uh, conserved in um, uh, flies as well. So it's in mammals. And it's a particularly interesting receptor because it's known to be the target of hallucinogens. So things like, for example, psilocybin, and um, we, what we did was to, was to hypothesize that, you know, in this model where DPM connects the two streams, and the end of that connection, so when DPM is carrying over the activity, for example, the gamma D cells, the Kenyan cells should receive that input, which is serotonergic from DPM, via serotonergic receptor. So we, screens basically all the serotonergic receptors that we know are expressed in these cells. And we know this also because we have access to a single cell transcriptomic data. Uh, and uh, what we found is that we, uh, if we knock down the expression of the 5-HD2A receptor in these visual Kenyan cells, we actually can uh, interrupt the multisensory memory enhancement. And we also saw that this uh, our, our imaging data recapitulated or strengthened this 
results. So uh, this is slide 34. And what you can see here is that we um, uh, compared basically the uh, olfactory responses after multicenter training in gamma D, in the gamma 5 compartment, in animals that had 5-HC2A expression in the gamma D cell, and on the right side, uh, flies that did not or had this uh, receptor expression knocked down by using RNAi. And what you see is that when we knock down the expression of 5-HD2A, we actually abolished, abolished this cross-modal activation. So we prevented the ability of a visual canine cells to get excited by odors. And uh, one interesting thing as well is that um, we also, besides Fabricci to AB, receptor for hallucinogens, we also know that um, uh, neuropsychiatric disease like autism and schizophrenia uh, have been shown to have uh, de deficits in, um, in multisensory learning. And, we also, and this has been associated to the the, the uh, serotonergic dysfunction as well. So this was a nice, uh, a nice uh, parallel. A nice yeah. parallel, yeah. exactly. That uh, in in flies we also see a, a role, an important role for the serotonergic system to be involved. Um, so and then, if you move to slide thirty-five, it's just basically the summary and. Uh, basically, what we show is that multisensory learning in Drosophila improves memory, even when single modalities are tested. And this is what we kind of associate to also to uh, what happens in the hippocampus with this pattern, pattern completion. So where one stimulus is, is enough to, to, to recall the old memory. Also, we show that multisensory training binds modality-specific neurons and expands the memory engram. So the engram is like the cells required for memory. So here, uh, our hypothesis is that the memory enhancement that we see after multisensory is just basically because we have more cells coding for this memory and um, via this uh, bridge between, uh, between cells by DPM. And uh, the binding is dependent on serotonin and dopamine signaling as well. And uh, Finally, on slide 36 is basically um, the people that contributed uh, to the work. Yeah, uh, this is a team effort, like more than the two of us, of course, as well. Yes, um, and then two, two incredibly gifted undergrads, uh, Chiara and Kieran, um, a, a PhD student, Paula, um, Cliff, uh, that is our engineer in the department that help us with the, the imaging setups. And Niels was the person responsible for the connectomics. Uh, he's our connectomics wizard. Yes. And on the right is basically kind of all our. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the rest of the lab, which of yeah. course, you know, we often have a discussion with, and their input was invaluable. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening to us. I, if you have any questions about any part of the work or any part of, you know, our day-to-day -day life working on this, so anything, we'd be happy to explain. 
Yeah, thank you so much for this wonderful presentation and for guiding us through your data. It was really wonderful to uh, understand and to follow this, basically. Um, yeah, yeah, we hope it was clear. <laughs> yeah, and um, I, you know, it. Um, while I was following along, it was, um, yeah, it was really interesting to hear you, um, you know, about what you predicted, and especially the the um, to make then the connections what you predicted what the data was and and how you followed along it was really interesting and um yeah i'll ask a few questions and then um i'll give dr shah and denise and anyone that shares in the chat maybe a question the opportunity to also ask a question so please everyone if you have questions either share them in the chat or raise your hand to come here to ask them in person. And um, yeah, this is our, as I said, this is such an interesting story and how um, how this different visual um, versus uh, olfactory system kind of get involved and, you know, are cross-modal basically. I thought this was a really interesting result um because i kind of always thought before like back in time um that uh, you know the the cortex of you know modern mammal cortex there you know it's very easy to think how they can be cross-modal um i don't think back in time we suspected that from different um systems in the drosophila so i thought that was uh really interesting um and uh, from an evolutionary perspective since i think pedro is also interested in that do you think that the more complicated basically the the, the environment and, and like also social environment became this was kind of the first step of uh, going into having a, a you know a modern cortex you know the modern cortex is kind of an algorithm to be you know it's it looks very similar no matter if you look into you know sensory motor versus you know prefrontal cortex you know anatomy as 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 you couldn't if you would cut it out put it somewhere else it'd be really hard to distinguish so um do you think that that came next uh, out of necessity and this was kind of the first step towards that uh yeah thank uh, yes um uh, thank you for the question yeah um it definitely like of course flies are much simpler than uh, mammals and uh, they don't have the cortex but what we found is that indeed these animals like uh, flies can do these associations and can find this information and basically use the same molecules that we see that are important in mammals so we we uh, suspect that uh, based on our previous work that uh, 
uh, in the lab that we showed that similar parallels between vertebrates and flies, the, the principles are basically the same. They're just like expanded in the in the cerebral cortex of mammals and um, uh, and primates and humans. And but basically they they the the rules are basically the same. And that's the the beauty of using the fly is that we can actually probe the uh, the the rules that are happening and where it's much more difficult in vertebrates. Yeah, I would bet, for example, you know, don't hold me up on this, but it's very likely that serotonin and even 5-HT2A would be responsible for sort of connecting the, uh, the different streams of information in the mammalian brain, you know, even connecting the different cortices. And uh, Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, would you... You know, since the garbagic system kind of had not just an expansive role, but still a role in there, would you would you kind of categorize that the garbagic system is more kind of to separate things and serotonin to connect and collaborate in the brain or is that way too, you know, for the broader audience? No, I mean, to be honest, I... I think this is a pretty, in my opinion, it's a good uh, sort of general categorization, right? So I think what, at least in the fly, what's happening is that indeed DPM is sort of providing this uh, excitatory um, uh, glue or excitatory bridge, but then the fine tuning, the restriction of this excitation specifically to the relevant compartments by responding to dopamine, it's probably happening via the GABAergic inhibition. So that GABAergic inhibition is fine tuning the excitatory input to restrict it to the relevant locations. Yes, and we also in the paper, we also have some data that supports this by blocking a specific dopaminergic um, neuron um, in the this GABAergic uh, dopaminergic uh, receptor in this GABAergic neuron, we see uh, um, an an effect in in the memory. So, it's somewhere in our data. Oh, slide forty-five. I think that's the APL. I see. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It doesn't matter so much if you go back to the slides or not. But what we saw is that if we block uh, this uh, dopaminergic receptor in the um, in the GABAergic neuron, and we do offertory or uh, offertory retrieval, we abolish the memory. So they need uh, this APL is basically the source of uh, localizing um, localizing this increase in memory enhancement to the specific region where dopamine uh, dopamine happens, where dopamine is released. And um, I don't know if in Drosophila, is there one system a little bit faster than the other? Like, is the visual system a little bit faster than the olfactory one, or is it the opposite way? I was thinking if that may play a role oh, to which one becomes then more crucial for retrieval or adapts faster, that it becomes crucial for the system, kind of a point of failure for the system if there's a multi-sensory memory going on? 
So, I mean, I, I think if I understand correctly, are you, if, first of all, what do you mean by faster? But uh, or are you asking in general, for example, the, the bi-directionality, you know, is there one sense that's dominating over another in this setup? Is that the question? Yeah, dominating and has kind of a faster um, uh, information processing, like, you know, in mammals, um, for example, the auditory system is the fastest one to arrive, like hmm. if there's a threat or so. They are the least connections that need to be bridged. Um, so if you want to learn the fastest, basically, you just have a few neurons to kind of startle assist like mm -hmm. some, some animals. So um, and then the visual system is also really fast compared to like other sensory systems, you know, that's why people theorize you have kind of this weird fears that you don't know where they came from. It's because you didn't even consciously had time to process them and type of a threat situation. And then you're scared of red and you don't know anymore that you saw maybe something red there because it was too fast. Is there something similar like that in the Drusophila? And is that why, um, you know, there's kind of a difference between the alpha Factorian the odd, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so one thing that's uh, maybe really clear when uh, we talk that we are actually, so we are the, of, of course, visual, um, visual information comes from the eye, right? But here we are looking at the mushroom body where basically we kind of, know that they have basically uh, both the offertory streams and the visual streams uh, project to these canyon cells and basically they have the same um, information time so they are not basically they're not faster because they are exactly in the same um, location they, they are exactly in the same location and uh, and this this is not the primary like the visual canyon cells are not the primary visual receptor so these are just uh, cells that exist in the mushroom body that that also receive input from the visual system. And like the uh, olfactory canyon cells are not the primary sense, so they are just uh, cells that receive the, the sensory information. So basically, uh, we don't assume that uh, they have a different, uh, one being faster than the other, but uh, we have some, uh, we have some data that suggested that there are some sort of, um, combination of this and some of the, the, the senses, especially because uh, if you see the Timae schematic, it's basically a tube where the flies are kind of bound together. So it's difficult to assume that this, um, it's, it will be different if a fly is uh, flying and they have uh, older, they are much more visual information coming through. So uh, basically we are uh, bound to the, the, the the paradigm that we're using and and it's not like necessarily the most ethological relevant one like flies walking around yeah i mean one of the things that's important to note is that you know, we're doing a very unnatural uh activity for the flies right so they I, this is not in any way recapitulating 
something they would experience in nature. And also we have this word called salience, right? We don't know what these, uh, how these cues uh, are received by the fly. So we don't know, you know, whether being in a wind tunnel, uh, having these colors would be like sort of less uh, distracting to them or, you know, would they pay more attention to odors? We don't, we can't really understand that. But as Pedro said, you know, by looking at the mushroom body, we're kind of assuming that uh, the encoding of visual and olfactory stimuli are happening at the same time. There might be very slight differences in, you know, the temporal resolution of it, and we don't know about that. But what we do know is that we do have an experiment where we did not, I don't think we included it in the paper actually, but if we present, for example, the colors and the lights in a sequential way with sugar, so not together at the same time, but sequentially, this doesn't seem to improve the memory as it, it does when we present both the colors and the odors at the same time. And the, like, if you see the data that you present, uh, we don't see we don't see really a visual memory alone, right? So we assume that this wind tunnel or this image is more the the olfactory information will be predominant. But I would assume if we put them. Uh, in a fly mode, like I mean, the flight mode, so where the flies have to learn how to associate cues and uh, turn around while flying, the maybe the visual system there takes more predominance because the visual system is much more important to to orient themselves than the olfactory system. So I guess it's also the paradigm uh, that you use, use yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's really interesting, you know, there was a paper years ago, um, which kind of reminds me, so I don't know if you know the paper where there was shown that visual rhythm perception learning in humans was better if um, if yeah, there was I know I know the paper. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I know the paper you're talking about, yes. Yeah, do you think there's a correlation there like this is kind of the underlying mechanism like you already kind of alluded towards that but i thought it was interesting to make that connection there yeah i mean there's actually what we did not mention is that in the mushroom body at least for flies right there's no reason for us to think that this is a special uh, this is a mechanism that's special only uh, for the connection between olfactory and visual streams. Because in the mushroom body, there are also, for example, cells that encode for gustatory or tactile cues. And, you know, we would assume that the mushroom body would use similar mechanisms to sort of parse together this information as well. So I don't see, you know, I can't, we can't really say what happens in humans, but we would imagine that the brain likes to sort of uh, utilize mechanisms that work right and it doesn't reinvent everything from scratch but uh sort of does variations on similar mechanisms so i imagine that there's there's something perhaps similar going on yeah thank you so much uh for that and uh, i wanted to give hand over the microphone to dr shah hi dr shah nice seeing you 
Hi, Katarina. Hi, everyone. And thank you so much for sharing your wonderful research with us. Uh, so my question is about because you mentioned about the dopamine receptors and specifically when we are talking about the midbrain and uh, we know we are aware of the drosophila and the cellular diversity that we have there and specifically when we are talking about 5-HTP serotonin or dopamine I was just wondering to ask you uh, is there any kind of information that you could gather about the histamine because when we are talking about monoaminase this one can as a role and I was wondering to ask you about it. Uh, with with that we didn't specifically look at any other um, other monoamine and uh, but uh, we know that there uh, is a neurotransmitter in the photoreceptors but but we don't uh, we didn't look at uh, this activity um, as well within yeah because we know that uh, I don't think there's uh, people haven't described uh, histamine in the mushroom body. So I'm not sure, you know, it's not one of those uh, um, it's not one of those neurotransmitters that have been in in the in the sphere of learning and memory circuit. So we didn't really look into that because we were focusing on where this particular interaction could happen. And the duration of the, the learning was six days, right? Based upon your experiment. No, it's six hours, actually, six hours. And okay. we did test different uh, time points. So what we did show is that all this and all this sort of multisensory interaction and the memory improvement, we could observe at immediate memory. So this is right after learning at uh, six hours, which is kind of like a midterm memory and at 24 hours. And we also saw that the same mechanisms were at play in uh, aversive learning. So this is like, for example, punishment learning. And again, at different time points. So it seems to be a relatively general mechanism for associative learning with multisensory input. However, when it's optimized on uh, six hours, it seems, and we are dealing with the postsynaptic, correct? Mostly because we are, we are talking about dopamine. And uh, I, I, I'm you, assuming that. Sorry, more can you than... speak up a little bit? I, I, we are having difficulty hearing. Can you hear me now? Better. Um, a little bit louder, if possible. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So when yeah. we are talking about dopaminergic, we are focusing mostly on postsynaptic, right? And I'm assuming when we are talking about drosophila and midbrain, uh, more than seventy percent supposed to be postsynaptic, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, and, and when we are just want to compare that to the learning center, so I'm assuming it's supposed to be post to the learning center, correct? So what is supposed to be? Uh, Location, learning center. So, so the, the dopamine, the dopamine essentially is being released on in the in the compartments where axons of Kenyan cells, right? are uh, synapsing with mushroom body output neurons. And the presence of dopamine changes uh, the weight of these synaptic connections between the Kenyan cells and the mushroom body output neurons. So in that sense, it is postsynaptic. Correct. OK, so thank you so much. <laughs>
No. Thank you for asking. Yeah, thank you. And Denise, did you have a question that you wanted to uh, ask or comment? Thank you, Karina. Um, Salam Zeynep Hocam. Ben Deniz Hi, Jose. Um, thanks for thanks for both of you for this really interesting presentation. I didn't really understand some of the finer points of um, you know how different neurotransmitters will be implicated in these sorts of um, learning or memory. And it was just when you were the the whole premise of this reminds me of proprioception and orbit of earth and you know it's not really a memory recall but it has to do about the the integration of sensory inputs multi multimodal integration so for mm -hmm. example if you're in orbit um if you are inverted in zero g you'll become disoriented and one of the reasons for that is you're not getting any sensory input from your your lower extremities and that will the full integration of those sensory um, inputs will give you the ability to, you know, for example, uh, not fall down a flight of stairs because you haven't miscalculated the, the distance and the range and, you know, your rate of speed that you'd have to do that safely. But it was very interesting about the color and odor. I didn't necessarily think about the, how these two things interact you know, when we're talking about um, recall, I feel like smell is one of the the easiest ones for people to understand. You know, you mm -hmm. think about you think about um, you know what what's cooking in your grandmother's kitchen, and you know sometimes you may walk past that smell and it brings you right back to that point. Exactly. In, in time, um, it was really interesting about the the you know sugar water reward. I was curious about, you know, in a world with no budget, what would be the next uh, reward circuit that you might want to test outside of sugar water? Um, so using flies? Uh, using flies or, you know, any, any other organism you can think of? Uh, so I think, you know, we're... Uh, we, I, we've been looking at different reward pathways in our group, right? This is something, for example, we know a little bit more about how water reward works. We know a little bit more about uh, how, for example, sexual reward works. Um, we have some other things in the pipeline as well looking into this. But Pedro, for example, is getting interested in uh, how addictive um, or compulsive Circuits work. So in this case, I wouldn't. I don't know if you would call it reward, but would you call it reward? It, it, at some point, it's also uh, reward because you know, basically, OCD is basically um, obsessive compulsive disorder. You get a, a, a reward or a relief, a relief from executing a, a compulsive behavior. So in this sense, yeah, there will be a, a reward component. And we know that dopamine is also involved in this, so yeah, um, I guess that's yeah. yeah. Uh, and Denise, thank you for uh, letting us know about that. I didn't know about that the uh, mismatch in you know with the gravitational force. If you couldn't have input, sensory input, 
from your lower extremities that kind of messes with your perception. That's very cool. And what we do know is that, you know, brains have evolved to process information by integrating uh, information from different uh, senses, right? Like we, the representation of events and objects in our mind are inherently multisensory. And insects, for example, bees use this to, when they're flying around, they use both, for example, the color and the smell of flowers to guide their behavior. And they learn much, much quicker. And for us, it's basically the examples are in, uh, completely, you know, they're infinite. Essentially, I don't think there is a situation where we rely on a single sense. And that's that's before we even get into the social learning aspect of um, yeah of bees, especially emotional bees. learning aspect as well, because these are also internal cues. We're only talking about sensory cues here in in our example is uh, external sensory cues, right? So you have to realize that this also there are numerous internal cues that the brain needs to integrate essentially. Sorry. Yeah, fascinating. And it's, uh, would you, would you say that that is a lot of the unlocking of certain functions or restriction of other functions by just hormones and, and the chemistry or are there other things that I'm missing? Yeah, uh, I think exactly, that's exactly it. We are like a mask, basically what we, of course it's a bit of a fast stretch, but we are basically giving flies synesthesia. So they are uh, like by modulating this uh, dopaminergic and serotonergic system, we are basically, uh, the flies are basically experiencing colors or the color memory by using offertory neurons. So we are basically uh, unmasking uh, this, this, this connection by modulating these, these neurotransmitters. Yeah. And it's in interesting to consider, you know, this thing about hormones or the state of the animal also plays a role. For example, the very basic one is that sugar memory in flies, the expression of sugar memory uh, and the retrieval of sugar memory is dependent on the fly being hungry. So the fly actually will not express uh, a preference for a previously sugar paired odor if it's not hungry. So there's something interesting with respect to, sorry? Fascinating. That's, uh, I don't know. Like exactly. De de and dealing with the dealing with the flies in Turkey, it just, uh, it seems like they're hungry all the time. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, what's, I think what I'm also now interested in the future is to sort of delve deeper into how the same uh, stimulus, essentially, the same sensory stimulus can elicit completely opposite behaviors. So this can happen, right? So if aversion. you anthropomorphize like it with alcohol aversion, yeah. Or, or for example, if you see, let's say, a tiger in the wild versus in the zoo, you might have sort of very different completely. reactions to it, yeah, right? Completely different reaction. <laughs> exactly. So there's something interesting about, you know, this is obviously a very complex uh, behavior, but uh, the good thing about working with flies is that we can sort of be super reductionist and try to bring it down, strip it down to its uh, basic level where we say like, okay, you know, how do you make the simplest experiments for this? 
and what does that tell us? Which is how we went about doing this project that we just presented to you. I was, that, that was so interesting. I was curious about if there was anything that was out of scope of this paper, but you still wanted to talk about it maybe, like there wasn't any room for it, but you still feel it deserves to be talked about. Um, we did a bunch of that right now, so I'm very happy about that already. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, for example, with the, one second, we're trying to, how did you fix this last time? Yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> we're still trying to uh, navigate Clubhouse, but now I think we've, we got the hang of it. Um, I'm trying to think if we did anything that, you know what we were kind of interested in knowing is that there are some counterintuitive findings in our work, which is, uh, Pedro alluded to this a little bit, where he said, you know, we're, we're actually, we still haven't fully demonstrated why the, the memory is improved. So we know, you know, it's implied from our work that indeed you expand this engram. So you're basically, um, you know, uh, storing this memory in a greater number of cells, which then should drive a stronger response. But we don't really know what's happening downstream of these Kenyan cells and how these so-called mushroom body output neurons are interacting perhaps to improve uh, behavior. And, and also because we, we didn't mention this because it's, uh, it was too complicated to, to go in and find detail, but we know that in, at least in offertory memory, the, the rule of uh, learning is a depression between uh, dopamine and the and the, the output neurons and the canon cells. So we have an inhibitory effect on dopamine. So, but here what we see is an excitation. So the learning rules that happen after multisensory are, are different from the learning rules that are happening during unisensory memory retrieval. So that I guess that's the, the big question marks now is like what are the exact learning rule that's happening in this in this um... and what he means by learning rule is basically at the microscopic well everything's microscopic level here but at the microscopic level of the synapses right the specific but like biophysics of uh, the different molecule changes and the 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 sort of activity signs right they at times don't match up in the way that we expected so there needs to be, like, we would want to, in an ideal world, if when we had more time and didn't have to move on, <laughs> that we would look into this. Wow. Yeah. Okay. This was really, this was a really great conversation. But um, you know what was interesting that is about this, that when you said that, this is the only time where we thought there was a counterintuitive thing. And it's the first time, I've been in the lab for 20 years almost now, and it's the first time that I've been working on a project where literally every single experiment that we did was in line with what we thought was happening. Like in the way that, uh, or what, you know, things started fitting together one after the other, that we didn't have one, out, uh, one piece of information that was really out of place until the very last bit, which like it 
gifted the project gifted us with like one open door where things didn't really fit. But until then, it was really fascinating because I've never had this where things just work out one after the other. So it was very exciting to work wow. on it. Wow. Is it, you think that's just a function of you having uh, looked at this information for 20 years or is there something else at play? No, I mean, I haven't worked on this for 20 years. I, I'm actually, uh, I've been working on behavior only for six, seven years now. But I don't know why it worked out like this. I think that I think the what our lab, uh, since Scott's uh, run his lab, it's basically we are very focused on this area, so on this mushroom body. So we really know our learning and what are the learning rules and what are the we can almost kind of predict what happens in different paradigms that we didn't test because we actually know uh, what are the connections, especially now with the, all the connectomics uh, and transcriptomics that we have, like the, 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 these new tools, we can actually go at the single genes and single uh, neural interactions. And this makes it much easier to, I guess, to predict what is going to happen. Mm -hmm. The, the moving parts, the number of moving parts are much, much, much less, right? I mean, I, sometimes it's not the best uh, comparison, but it's a little bit like having a four, uh, sort of four box uh, Rubik's Cube versus a giant, giant one. So we have something a lot more manageable. So we're just playing with the fundamentals and are able to ask big questions and do uh, manageable experiments that give us quantitative answers. And this is the beauty of the fly. You know, people don't like working on the fly. They kind of think it's, well, some people don't, but they, they uh, the first reaction is almost like, oh, do they even have a brain? But in fact, there's a lot <laughs> that these, these animals can tell us because it's almost like a little playground in which we can, sim uh, we can run simulations almost. Do, do you get that attitude more from lay people or other scientists that the fly is, is such a basic organism that it, it has nothing to, to add to you know, knowledge about humans? I think lay people are more surprised that the flies have brain, but yeah. I think the, 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 the aspect of uh, the flies that don't have anything to offer to humans is, I think it's more an attitude from scientists, I guess. Yeah, it's getting better, to be honest, but uh, unfortunately, there, we are still a little bit, uh, you know, researchers that work on animals that are so-called less than mice, right, or rodents, uh, invertebrates especially, like, we're a little bit the underdogs. Um, you know, we have to always still justify why the work we do is relevant for science in general. And now, however, if you think about it, you know, we've been, we were looking it up the other day that I think there's like 10 Nobel Prizes in total, or was it six? Did I just? Nine. Oh, nine. Sorry. Nine Drosophilus have won Nobel Prizes for their work in Drosophila. So this, this already tells you that, you know, these are extremely powerful research models. And yeah, I wanted to, to say like how memory also works was not done in mammals and a lot of 
things we know, how neurons work, how information processing works, like the synapse works, was done in squid, like giant axons and, yes. you know, Pandel, that was all, you know, not neurons. A lot of things we know about how cells work are from yeast and yeah. most of it, it's pretty much the same, even DNA wise, like there's such a huge overlap. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 Definitely. I would have actually, I would have loved to study microbiology, but then I fell in love with uh, flies. So that <laughs> it's fine, but I would never, I would never leave this model organism actually, because for me, you know, I think Eve Marder, I don't know if you know her, but she's, she's like a, she's a superb uh, neuroscientist in Brandeis. And basically I was, I once heard her on a podcast say something like, you know, as scientists, we need to choose where in the in the spectrum of ambiguity we want to be for example if you study human uh, brain you have to tolerate a huge amount of uncertainty and ambiguity and complexity because that's just the system that you're working with right you can still you can ask very interesting questions you can ask questions that pertain to language for example which are specific literally to the human race however um you know, for more general or more universal cognition questions, you can also use uh, systems like the fly. And in the fly, I like sort of the, it, it looks almost childlike, but I like the, the simplicity of it. And within that simplicity, there's still a huge amount of complexity. So we're talking about like 200,000 neurons in the brain. That's in, in the little worm, the C. elegans, there's what, 300, I think? Yeah, so, yeah, 390. So this is, you know, that we all, if we as scientists kind of like understand our model well and define what level we want to be at and then actually communicate across these dimensions, then that's how we get the most progress. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, I think it's really interesting. You know, you went and you know, you went in the discussion, even how the serotonin receptors um, that mediate this multisensory binding and how these are targets of hallucinogenic drugs that are really studied a lot right now in addressing mental health illnesses. So, you know, this is just a very detailed, but an example, um, how the overlap, um, you know, is it just an example how these systems overlap and, um, you know, even things like very specific ex um, experiments can make this connection to, uh, things we thought that were just humans that would experience um, like having this uh, hallucinations and these connections that usually the brain doesn't do and then have this visual perceptions and auditory perceptions, which I think is really interesting to make that connection because it's really a lot of visual and um, sensory inputs that make this weird connections in the brain and, and, and drive this hallucinations. And how do you think that this research, like, 
in the future, you know, your research uh, model could um, could make us understand better these systems and also then disorders that are related to it, such as schizophrenia and, and autism on both ends, basically, of the spectrum. How, how do you think that that research could be really lead to um, understanding these disorders? Um, so I actually, by the way, it's funny because I was just Googling whether anybody gave psilocybin to fruit flies. <laughs> What's the answer? That. I'm so curious. So, uh, Scientific American, I, uh, Katrina, I'm going to get back to your question, but Scientific American just has um, has an article from 2018 saying that magic mushroom drug evolved to mess with insect brains, and then turns out that a single dose of psilocybin has long-lasting antidepressant-like effects in fruit flies. So I, I don't, I haven't read the paper, but it seems like people have been trying to give uh, psilocybin to fruit flies. It would be interesting. Yeah, we'll check it out later on. I was um, wondering I think... if that would pass an internal review board, and apparently it has. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it um, so actually, I used to, I did my PhD in a, in a department that uh, focuses on neurodevelopmental and neurodegenerative diseases. And I used to work in flies then as well. And I even wrote a review based on, you know, what, how can the fl fruit fly, what can the fruit fly tell us about, you know, human disease and neurological disease, essentially. And again, it goes back to what we've been going, uh, rabbiting on about, just going on and on about how these fundamentals and the rules and the principles are conserved, right? So I think in this sense, there's a little bit of disservice done by fly researchers ourselves by you know trying to claim relevance constantly by saying like oh okay you know the depression model of uh, fruit flies or the i don't know just pick your uh, model like the parkinson's model of fruit flies of course there has been extremely valuable research in this right but we need to be very careful exactly what we're describing what does a model for a human disease look like in the fly well, it literally means, you know, we just want to understand the biology of what's going on more. And we can sometimes screen drugs very effectively because these animals are uh, very easy to rear. So if we have a general idea of the biological mechanism, we can also sort of use it as a, as a platform to screen for drugs that modify it. And people do this even in the yeast. So we don't, even, uh, we don't have to go at the level of flies. But I guess what you know I'm trying to say about this is that we do have quite a lot we can learn about disease using flies, but our, the real uh, let's say the real money is uh, our discoveries based on the the basic science of like what is uh, what is the basic mechanism underlying all these uh, disorders. Yeah, and basically we of course we. And it's difficult to have a schizophrenic fly or autistic fly because these are very human phenomena that have like social interaction and it's a uh, and basically uh, we we can't ask a fly that 
if we heard, uh, smell uh, smell colors or like we have to rely on the behavior. But what we have in our our work is that we have a a, a mechanism that we think it's how multisensory learning happens, and we've been seeing that humans also rely on serotonin and possibly on this 5-HT2A receptor. And so that's that's the the the, the contribution maybe to is that is this serotonin uh, doing this bridge to allow multisensory human uh, um, multisensory learning in humans uh, possible? And this is this bridge or whatever kind of um, parallel to this bridge that we have in the flies in these um, disorders as well. So it brings it brings ideas to the table. I think that's where the value of it is. Yeah, thank you um, for um, yeah for sharing that. And yeah, I agree. It won't get us, you know, to the behavior and so on. But you know, basic cell mechanisms maybe and um, a connectome insight uh, would give us a lot of um, yeah information that we couldn't as easily or at all gather in other systems so and I genetics as well uh, like genetics wise there's quite i think there was something like 79 percent of disease causing uh genes are conserved in the fly yeah i agree yeah i think and you know also gene expression uh, modifications due to you know um, the drugs uh, and what they do then to the cells and the gene expression would be really interesting to study in this uh, in this model and um, in this model of having this multi-sensory memory formation and recall and to see how these drugs kind of change that would be really interesting definitely uh, I think so, both me and Pedro, uh, not to not to make this longer, but both me and Pedro are, I, I'm speaking on your behalf, Pedro, please correct me on this. But one of the th reasons why I want to stick to the software is that now, for example, I'm going, I want to jump to other big questions, right? So of course, there's still a lot more to figure out with multi-sense, uh, you know, this particular paradigm and this multi-sensory learning. But you know, I'm already I've already moved on in my mind to all sorts of other questions. Like I'm curious about the immune system. I'm curious about um, basically how, let's say, yeah, again going back to contextual memory, but how the immune system might play a role in shaping our perception and cognition. So that's the cool thing about working with slides. You kind of can move quite uh, drastically from one question to the other. Yeah, that's, I agree. <laughs> it's really, you know, and having the, you know, you have also way more animal available and way cheaper than. Yeah, and don't, you don't need to get the ethical consent that much, although we try not to yeah. uh, sacrifice our animals for nothing, but it's uh, definitely not at the level of uh, other animals. Yeah, um, I mean, 
your research opens up so many new avenues of, of what um, people can do next. So this is another really beautiful thing about your research. And I'm really curious to kind of learn what comes next also out of your collaboration that uh, you explained was so crucial and you work so well together. So uh, we will be curious to follow, you know, your collaboration along. And um, yeah, maybe you'll come back and, and share some more about it. And thank you so much for, you know, staying here uh, for these uh, two hours. Uh, and you know making the content everything it was really a wonderful and really interesting discussion so we are really thankful and i hope you enjoyed it um because yeah no it's been amazing thank you so much for showing interest yeah thank you and i hope you know the nervousness about using this platform now turned into it was okay <laughs> no, we, no we are fine yeah <laughs> And now it's I'm good to not have a video, right? For two hours, if you have to sit there, oh, like, yes, looking good, <laughs> you're more relaxed, I think. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, thank you for sharing your work, and um, I, good luck for everything. We hope you'll get a lot of, lot of more funding in the future. Oh, because... thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, we, really we just hope that um, we're both going to be on the job market. Well, we are on the job market, just applying for group leader positions. But I just hope for, um, you know, at least on my behalf, I it was just so much fun. It was a lot of hard work, so don't get me wrong, you know, and a lot of drudgery, and it was exhausting. Uh, but at the same time, my God, it was so much fun. So this is all I dreamed about as a kid, to be able to be in this position of making discoveries. And I really hope that uh, I understand that the system, our, our funding system and our scientific discovery system puts uh, us sometimes in very difficult positions. But I hope that for all of us that we can continue holding on to that feeling, you know, and not have very, very long deserts of uh, sort of being stuck, let's say, because it's a really fun feeling to to be able to discover things. Yeah, I agree. It's it's fun and really hard. And I hope in the future, hopefully one day it will get less hard and more fun, yeah, the whole system so. for us. Because <laughs> I, I kind of feel once you get the, the group leader, the most work is bureaucracy and more bureaucracy. <laughs> so I hope that won't be the case for you. Um, I was just, the admin, the admin, you mean, right? Like there seems to be a big admin. Um, so I'm, I'm usually very interested in the sociological sides of this as well. So indeed, you know, being a group leader, it's very different depending also on the 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 position you have and also on the country that you have as well. I think. Yeah, and the institute and you know the department, how heavy puts burden on on people um 
to have all this administration stuff yeah. like it, it yeah check for that i can only give you advice of course the and as women we tend to like they call it the unpromotable work right so as women i think we're particularly vulnerable to get sucked into these um sort of committee work and well they can be quite rewarding like i i completely understand what you mean yeah yeah it depends where you are i don't want to get too much into it but yeah because i don't know everyone's system of course and just uh yeah and and then if you have in the department more people that are kind of in your area of research or not i think also makes a big difference if most people work on humans and you're kind of almost the only one not you know there you have to go through all this administration loops that is more designed for humans which are way more complicated and you have to go through them anyways also you know like it's it depends really on the school and how the department yeah, yeah, yeah. works and so on so <laughs> yeah exactly yeah but um it's also exciting <laughs> so every you know i think that the cool thing about this type of work is that life always changes uh and yeah. you know the things yeah. we do we have to learn always change i think that's exciting so yeah i we are really looking forward to follow you along and your next thank steps you. and maybe you'll come back and uh and thank you and there's always something so i do have a theory that uh, at least uh, maybe it's a way that i console myself but i do have a theory that uh, there's interesting questions in almost every sort of corner you look, right? This can be in this capacity of being a scientist, or even if you work in other jobs, I think there are ways to kind of make it more interesting in general. So I'm hoping that, you know, if academia works out, fantastic. But if not, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure eventually I'll end up doing something cool. We'll see. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, you will. And um, yeah, whatever will work out um you know will be uh, we, we can turn i think everything into something good and interesting so well first <laughs> of all congratulations for what you have achieved together and yeah it's happy you know we kind of get the privilege to get to speak with people when they achieved you know the sort of um yeah when they achieve this and they're happy about their work so you're very yeah. privileged in that way maybe we should move on to like middle stage to get the more <laughs> to get the more appropriate uh reflection how life is in science but um... ah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i feel what you mean <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, there have been days where, like, I think I, I sort of was frust so frustrated that I just stopped everything and went home crying, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 what I mean. That's part of it, and you know. <laughs> and there's no guarantee that it ever works out. So that's that's the catch. Like, I completely understand that, you know, this paper, while we're so happy it worked out, at all levels, it could have just not been possible.
and just because yeah. of some sort of um, um, some sort of luck factor. Yeah, there's always the luck factor that uh, people under appreciate, and um, yeah, people shouldn't be discouraged if something they are working on doesn't work out. It happens. Yeah. Uh, and well, also it's still, it's still difficult, online. but yeah. Some things just don't work, just don't get funded, and then you yep. you have something else. The best advice I think somebody gave me when I started my PhD is have a main project, but also have always one or two side projects that you can switch to if necessary. Yeah, yes, definitely. Work. You can procrastinate. Uh, one using the other one. Yeah, this is something that matters as well. It's true. <laughs> so you can break the break the monotony by just working on multiple problems at the same time without uh, diluting yourself so much. And one thing that I do is actually um, just um, I keep a little notebook as well, where I just write down random questions and things that interest me. And sometimes I go back to it because, uh, you know, there comes a time where you have to sort of generate, as you guys know, you have to generate these questions completely by yourself. So, uh, you know, they don't just descend on you on the spot. Therefore, keeping kind of like a non-judgmental catalog of all these questions is really helpful as well. Yeah, and I think what helps in kind of an environment if, there's kind of a judgment-free lab meetings between labs sometimes. And then people yeah, come yeah. up with questions that would help you. Where it's kind of judgmental-free. I can only encourage, you know, PIs and so to keep it that way. Because if you have an PI that I had for a while that says, I don't want your people to come with data and they don't know at all how to interpret it. You know, just don't uh -huh. give that burden to the audience. I don't think that was a good idea. It made a lot of pressure than people not sharing things with fear of, you know, I think it's a good thing. Like the the group can together think about, you know, answers questions. I think that can only be a good thing. I don't know how you think about it, but, you know, I would encourage judgmental free meetings in <laughs> the part work. And also, Katrina, it's wonderful that you started the Science Society. I mean, from what we understand, it's a, it's, it's a really fantastic way to talk about science. I really enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, that, that's most of the time the feedback, like in the beginning, people are very nervous uh, because it's different and so on. But then people say, oh, it's really interesting. And we really cover... Um, a lot of different fields of research, you know, from archaeology, imaging techniques, nanotechnology, I don't know, space, black matter, like dark matter, and uh, to, you know, biology and environment and neuroscience, like everything. And it's really interesting after a while since we've been doing this, how people from different backgrounds come up with really interesting questions that make these discussions kind of different from like a regular conference meeting. I think that's kind of what got me hooked uh, when, you know, this app kind of started and 
it was during COVID time, so everyone was at home anyway, so people had kind of time to do this, but that's kind of what I think was interesting to keep, you know, to keep going on and resting time. Yeah. It's well, thank you for being part of it. And yeah, maybe we'll hear you again um, and see you again. And uh, feel free, everyone in the future that is listening, reach out. If you still have some questions, reach out to me. I'll try to answer them. And um, yeah, thank you so much. And I hope everyone has a great rest of the day, morning, evening, wherever you are. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay. And uh, you. very nice to meet you all. Yeah, nice bye. to meet you. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.